0: I am waiting. I am waiting. I am waiting. I am waiting for God's best. I am waiting to have sex until I'm married. I'm waiting to have sex until I'm married. I'm saving myself for marriage. I want to save sex for my husband. I really want to save myself for my future wife. I'm waiting to have sex until I get married because in the Bible it says to flee from sexual immorality. The Bible says for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. On my wedding night, I want the man that I marry to know that I waited for him. I want to present myself pure as a gift for my husband. If I had to tell my wife that I was sexually active before I married her, I think I'd feel horrible. I know that there's one man out there that God has created for me, um, that I'm intended for, and that's the only person that I can ever give that gift to. I know that I need to save myself for her. It's such a precious gift, and you know, it's one of those things where Once you give it away you can't get it back. When you are sexually involved or when you're physically intimate with somebody, it pulls you away from God. God has a plan for your life. He wants the best for us. You were bought at a price and Christ paid that price for you on the cross and that's how valuable you are to Him and He doesn't want to see you get hurt. He created sex to be a precious thing when it's inside of marriages. He wants it. It's not easy. There's always that temptation right there. Yes, I think it will be hard but it's definitely possible. If you trust in God and let Him be in control of your life and let Him guide you, then it'll be so much easier. In the end, it will pay off. So don't just go giving yourself away to anyone who thinks that they love you. Take the initiative to stay pure. It's more than worth it. It's definitely worth it to wait. Save yourself. It's worth it in the end.
1: Well, you obviously uh, have picked up on the fact by now from the sermon title and from the video that it is a message about sex and dealing with sex. And uh, some of your parents, you might have some questions that come uh, this week as a result of this message. Uh, some of them in the 845 service said, okay, you've raised all these questions. Who's going to answer them? I said, that's your role. I just, I just helped you out today as far as we could go. But you know what that points to? It points to an issue that I think uh, where the church is falling down. Uh, on, on its job, and that is to teach about sex because there 's nothing wrong and nothing embarrassing about sex it 's a wonderful gift that God has given to us. The problem is is that human beings, even really from the beginning of time, have misused that wonderful gift that God has given and you know what 's happened then with that process. Our, our culture then has become what you might want to call uh, sex saturated or x rated and uh, you can tell that by just comparing it to things that you can find now about sex that maybe 40 years ago uh, you couldn't. You know, like these facts, that through the Internet with a couple of clicks on your, on your mouse, uh, you can access any kind of pornography that you want to. Your know, homosexuality is now seen as an acceptable alternative lifestyle. Uh, a lot of mainline denominations now have openly gay pastors or clergy, whatever you want to call them. Um, we routinely see things on television. That 30 years ago would have shocked us. And now, now we've almost become sensitized to it, that it doesn't bother us anymore. We've forgotten how to be ashamed. We've forgotten how to blush. New Day sex is used to sell everything from yogurt to high-class cars. Some of the, um, some of the Super Bowl commercials even alluded to some of that. And you had to watch that and be sure about that. And we know that the definition of marriage is being challenged and changed in, uh, by, through the courts in our country. And the Supreme Court could make a ruling, and they could decide uh, even more things than what they've already done or other lower courts have talked about about, um, about the ruling about what defines uh, a marriage and how do you define that. But well, the reality is that no matter what the Supreme Court of our land says, we have a supreme judge who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has given to us in the Bible uh, the guidelines for sexual purity. And we need to understand those and we need to follow uh, what he has said to us. And that's why we're talking today about if we're going to be a faithful church, if we're going to be the church in today's culture, then we need to commit to living lives of sexual purity. If there's one little bit of maybe God's wit and wisdom in in all this process, um, let me point you out to... Uh, November 2012 on Election Day, the state uh, of Washington had two controversial items, at least, on their, on their ballots. And the voters approved same-sex marriage, and they also at the same time approved uh, the use of marijuana recreationally, personally and recreationally. Now, in the book of Leviticus, God's Word says in the Bible, If a man lies with a man... They shall be stoned. You get that? Some of you forget. If you don't get it, ask the person sitting beside you. i say only God would know that that, those words thousands of years ago would be relevant for today. Right? Now, the reality is our culture is in trouble. It's in trouble because... I think for one reason is that, is that the church hasn't spoken out enough to talk about what constitutes pure sex. But instead, we've had to wait and, and retaliate and speak out defensively. And it comes across as that we're just only against everything that's out there. That we're against this and we're against that and we're against that. And so I, I want to ask you a question. Just think about this in, in your lifetime as a believer. How many sermons do you think you have heard? That just dealt with explaining sex and talking about sexual purity. See, so I'm 61. I thought about that this week. I doubt if I have heard 10 sermons that were directly related to, to sex and the life of the church. You know, we say, well, you know, that's something families need to talk about. And families say, well, they're doing that at school, they're hearing that at school. Then you don't like what they're doing at school, so what do you do about it? Well, not a whole lot, do you? So I think we've done a disservice in not really looking at what the Bible says about sex. Now, as we've been going through 1 Thessalonians, we've been looking at this church as a faithful church, and we've been challenged to be uh, that faithful church. Just as it happens, as we look at the next section of Scripture, uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the first eight verses, uh, Paul writes to these Thessalonian believers and talks to them about uh, sexual purity. And this is what he says, Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. As in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. That you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. And that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure but to live a holy life. Therefore he who rejects this instruction does not reject man but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now there is an awful lot that we could say from many different places in Scripture about sex in the context of it and how, what, what it teaches us. But just out of these verses, I want, to, I want us to think about specifically two major understandings. And the first is we need to understand God's restrictions on sexual activity. And in our first uh, uh, concept of looking at this, that there are two words that Paul used that we need to understand. In verse 3 he says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified and that you should avoid sexual immorality. Now, there are two words, actually. One is a word and then a phrase. The first one is the word avoid. What does avoid mean? I mean, have have nothing to do with it. Get away from it. Remove yourself from the situation. And what's the second thing that he wants us to understand? And that is the word sexual immorality. That phrase. What is sexual immorality? Well, it comes from the Greek word porneia. It's a very broad word encompassing every kind of sexual activity that is against the will and the teaching and the word of God. It covers sins of the mind, body, eyes, ears, lips. It includes premarital sex, extramarital sex, homosexuality, adultery, and every form of pornography. And, of course, we get the word pornography from that word pornea. And it's used about, I think, 85 times in the Bible, in the New Testament. And so there is that word pornea, and it it just permeates our culture, doesn't it? So we're challenged that in a world of impurity that we as God's children, as believers, as the church, being faithful, is that we're to be different. And that's what sanctified means. That's what this process of sanctification is. That, that we allow God to work in us, make us different, and set us apart from the ordinary. Now those are two words. Now there are two commands that he gives us to obey. First of all he says, control your own body. And he says in verses 4 and 5, each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. Now there's some argument that say, uh, this is to be translated, that each man should possess his own vessel. And um, they say that that means he should keep his wife in line. And uh, later on in 1 Peter, Peter writes and refers to the wife as the weaker vessel. But I think the majority of writers understand this, and this is the way I understand this, that each person, man or woman, male or female, you're responsible for controlling your impulse to sin sexually. And you see that's the difference between living for God and having your life empowered by God and the Holy Spirit in your life and not living for God and not having the power of the Holy Spirit. And see Paul talks about what the problem is. He said it's passionate lust. And he says it's of the heathen. And see, that's when God is not in control of a person's body. And notice carefully the reason that he gives. He says, the heathens do not know God. That would make sense if it's a heathen, somebody out there has never heard the word of God, never had the teaching of the word of God, that they could take sex and abuse it. But Paul's rationale is that if you are a believer, if you are committed to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, then you're committed to the study of His Word and you know what God allows and what He does not allow in the sexual relationship. And when people turn away from God, like our culture has today, then we see the results of it. But we know God if we truly are born again and we know God and live for Him and we shall not be overcome by sexual lust. Then the second thing He says He wants us to know is, do not wrong your brother. He says this in verse 6, in this matter... No one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The King James Version uses the word defraud. Other places talks about uses the word wrong or cheat. You see, what happens is, is when sex is out of control, somebody always gets hurt. Somebody always gets hurt. And you're going to wrong somebody. You're going to cheat somebody. You're going to defraud somebody. It's like our young people on the video talked about. If you have sex before marriage, and then you marry somebody else, then you're not able to give to him or her that pure gift that you want to give. See? And always somebody gets hurt. So let me, let me give you some examples of how this might be fulfilled. You know, he might say, don't cheat your brother, that's your Christian brother, by sleeping with his wife. Don't cheat your wife by dreaming of other women. Or cheating on her with another woman. Or in today's culture with another man. You know, don't cheat your boyfriend or girlfriend by pushing them to have sex. One of the common lines that so many of them fall for is prove you, prove you love me. Let's have sex and prove our love. Wait. If you have to do that to prove your love, then it's not love, it's lust. Okay? Don't cheat then, that relates to this, your future husband or wife by giving away that which you can never get back. It's a precious gift. Don't cheat your friends by claiming to be one thing in public and something else in private. Don't cheat your family by sneaking away behind their backs. Don't cheat your loved ones by doing something you would be ashamed for them to know about. You see, immorality is like that. It always cheats someone else. And it's usually someone you love very much. Now perhaps remember the saddest thing about all of this relates around that concept of lust. And Paul talked about that lust, and somebody said, "Fine, lust is this—the craving for salt by a man dying of thirst." It just really makes no sense because it doesn't satisfy. There is no lasting satisfaction in sex that is outside the context of marriage. Then there are three things that Paul says God wants you to know. First of all, God will punish those who practice immorality. In verse, the latter part of verse six, he says. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. How does God punish? Well, sometimes he punishes the body, sometimes the mind, sometimes his speech or your eyes. Oftentimes it's your health. He just lets you up, go to uh, fall victim to the lust. But remember this. In the future, what has been done in secret will be shouted from the rooftops. And God will somehow punish you for sexual immorality. The second thing I want you to know is that God has called us as believers to a life of purity. In verse 7 he says, For God did not call us to be impure but to live a holy life. You see one of the great virtues that Christianity brought that no other religion did was chastity. And an emphasis upon sexual purity. Because they came, it was birthed. Uh, it was birthed in a world in which there were temples of prostitution. Uh, where people would worship with temple prostitutes. Uh, there were multiple marriages, there were multiple uh, spouses within marriages, all against God's uh, uh, written word, and all against God's intended purpose for marriage. And so God is reminding us though that as believers, followers of Christ, the church today, then that we are to be pure and live a life of purity. The third thing that Paul says God wants you to know is in verse 8. And that is that rejecting purity means you're rejecting God. It says, therefore, he who rejects this instrument, instruction, does not reject man but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. And you see, to, to reject means to treat with contempt. It's to render that commandment of God null and void. Now the bottom line is every one of us in here has been tempted, and we deal with that issue of lust. So how do we control that? How do we handle that? Now let me give you just a few guidelines. There are others that you can that you can deal with that you know are there once we get going. First of all, know your limits. You've got to know your strengths and your weaknesses, so know your limits. Second, stay out of questionable areas. You know, stay out of questionable areas. Number three, don't fight this battle alone. Find a trusted friend, companion, and ask them to hold you accountable. Pray for you, strengthen you, encourage you. Don't make excuses. Be honest about your problem. It's important that you trace the cycle of lust in your life. See, we all have trigger, trigger things that trigger uh, our allergies, that trigger uh, our emotions, that trigger our feelings, you know. And so there are things that trigger lust. And you have to learn what they are. Most people who have been in the counseling sessions about, about falling to the sexual temptations have said it because I was rejected. Well, you know, I can understand the hurt and the disappointment if you're rejected by your spouse. But that's not a reason then to fall into sexual immorality. You both need to talk about that. You might both need counseling because Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians that the the man and the wife owe the same thing to each other. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on in the biblical concept of marriage and sex. And so the last thing I would say to you is remember who you are. Who are you as a member of the church? Who are you as a Christian? You're a child of God. You are to be a new creation. You are to be saved, redeemed, justified, forgiven, regenerated, and seated with Christ in heavenly places. And all the promises of God are yours. Now Paul also goes on to say in verse 8 that he ends with a hopeful phrase. How do we handle all that? He said, God who gives you his Holy Spirit. So that word gives about the Holy Spirit keeps talking about it's in the present, the future. And it keeps talking about he gives and gives and gives. And that means simply this, That when you have the Holy Spirit abiding in you as a believer, you don't fight this battle on your own. But you have the Holy Spirit in your life to empower you, to give you wisdom, to give you guidance. There's no power except that power that comes from God that will enable you to say no to the sexual temptations of this world. Okay? Now, here's the second thing that we need to look at. And that is... Paul wants us to understand God's requirement for sexual purity. And we're going to say just simply four things that's drawn from here and other places in Scripture, okay? First of all, sex is a gift from God. It is a precious gift that God has given to us. He's a good God. He loves us. And He wants to give us the best. And He's given to us sex. We're all sexual beings. We're either female or we're male. And we all have a sex drive. And the reality is... None of us would be here if there wasn't for the sex act, right? And so it's a part of our life. It is a gift from God. And God gave it to, to, to us, human beings, Adam, uh, because he saw that Adam was in the garden alone. And so he saw that Adam needed a helpmate. And so he put Adam to sleep. He took a rib out of his side. And when Adam woke up, he saw this beautiful creature whose name was Eve. And you know what Adam said? He said, whoa, man. Now, what he really said was, "This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my p- flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man." And then Adam said, "For this reason, a man will leave his God said. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh." I think that's the first reference in scriptures to sex. Let's talk about that act of unity between a husband and a wife in the marriage relationship. Flesh is joined together. You see, Adam and Eve did not become uncomfortableness or ashamed in their nakedness until they sinned. And they knew then that they had sinned. Sex is a gift from God. Secondly, God created sex to be shared only in marriage between a husband and a wife. And since we are in the culture that we are today, let me take it one step further and say... That is to be shared only in marriage between a husband and a wife which is a man and a woman. That is the way God designed it. You see marriage is the most important institution and I wrestle with that word. Uh, You know I think about institutions, I think about treatment centers or I think about colleges or universities or something like that that is an institution. But marriage is called an institution. You look at most every wedding ceremony and it is called that. But God created marriage and the family unit before we created anything else, before we put anything else into our social structure. The Bible begins with a marriage in the Garden of Eden, and it ends with a marriage in the Garden at the the time of the fulfillment when the bride is reunited with Christ. So marriage is important to God. And God gave us sex to be shared in marriage for two purposes. One is to unite the husband and the wife at the deepest level of intimacy. It fulfills the levels of emotional, spiritual, and physical makeup. is why it is often called making love. And the second purpose of course is for, to procreate. Uh, if God chooses to bless the, the marital union between a man and a woman then children come. Sometimes that is not in His plan. But I want you to think about this. I, I, I don't think I am wrong in this and, I, and somebody could correct me that later and I know you will. But I thought about mammals. Aren't mammals defined by the fact that they are, they are conceived in, through sex and given a live birth? I, I think all mammals are classified that way. So all mammals are created through the sexual encounter. And, and what they do is not called making love. It's just an animal intuition that God has put into animals so that they will procreate and produce more of who they are. I mean, we don't look at the animals out there and say that they're making love. They're mating, you know? So that's why a difference between that, the animal kingdom, and the world, and us. You see, sex between a husband and a wife is a sacred act in the eyes of God. And pickup sex between animals or four-legged animals or two-legged animals isn't sacred. It's just a physical act. And Jesus affirmed that in Matthew 19 when he said... At the beginning, the Creator made them male and female, and said, "For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh." That is the union in marriage of sex, and where God, where God wants sex to be enjoyed. Then, third thing to say about it is, any sexual act outside of marriage is sinful. We know that a sex drive is powerful. You know, it can be referred to. Refer to uh, uh, Kind of thought about as maybe a river. And as long as that river is maintained within its banks, it's a beautiful, purposeful thing. But if it ever gets over the banks and overflows, it gets out of control and it creates damage. Same thing with sex. When it goes beyond God's barriers, it always results in some kind of disaster. And Paul writes about that in 1 Corinthians 6. And he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolatrous, nor adulterous, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He said those are strong words. And sexual immorality is there, and it covers a whole host of sexual sins. Premarital sex, which is sex before marriage. Adultery is when a married person has sex with somebody else outside of his or her marriage. Homosexuality is when people of the same gender have sex. See, premarital sex is is a sin. Adultery is a sin. Homosexuality is a sin. But listen to this. If you've fallen into any of those, I'm not here to condemn you. But I'm telling you to stop it and come to God, ask for His forgiveness, and He will give it to you. He will make you new. He will forgive you if you truly want to be forgiven and get rid of that in your life. Because He loves you. He's just pointing out the sins that might be in your life. And that's probably hit almost every one of us, those definitions right there. Almost every one of us hit some place in our life. So he can forgive you and he can change your life. God loves every one of us who's committed any kind of sin. Now, we know that the the hot topic of today is about homosexuality and and same-sex marriage. I want to say something about that. I think uh, maybe we, we failed to teach about it being proactive and so now we are having to be reactive about that. But we know that it is being challenged everywhere in our country. And we know that homosexuality by the Bible is wrong. So my answer would be very short is to say to you this. uh, Homosexuality is wrong both biblically and biologically. It is wrong biblically because God created it to be sex between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. It's wrong biologically because that's not the way God designed it. He designed it so that male and female come together in that act of oneness. And the purpose of it is to fulfill each other but also for procreation. Now, how do you respond to the critics? How do you respond to your opponents who are in favor of same-sex marriage? Now, let me give you two questions that they might ask and how would you answer them. All right, say same-sex marriage proponents or advocates say this. Well, the prohibition against homosexuality is in the Old Testament book of Leviticus. If you believe that, why don't you observe the kosher law, uh, food laws and observe the Sabbath? All of those are in the same book. Well, that's a great question. And if you're not careful, you can get tricked up on it. But here, here's, here's the answer that I come up with. A lot of those in the Old Testament are what you call ceremonial laws. And when Jesus died on the cross, he canceled out all those ceremonial laws. In Colossians two fourteen, it tells us about the fact that Jesus took them away and nailed them to the cross. But at the same time, in the Old Testament, there are moral laws that never were abolished. We, we, we are told in the New Testament not to commit murder, not to steal, not to lie, not to defraud, not to commit adultery. All of those things. See, there's a difference there between uh, what we call the cultural laws and the moral laws. Where is an example of that? Well, look at Romans 1. Apostle Paul wrote about people in sexual immorality and he said, They, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. I say, I don't think you can get any clearer than that. That homosexuality is not a natural sex relationship. A natural sex relationship is between a man and a woman. It is the deepest level of intimacy and biologically it is for procreation. Homosexual conduct is unnatural and outside of the boundary that God has created for sex. Now, a second question about uh, from same-sex marriage proponents could be: How could my marriage to a person of the same sex that I love harm your marriage? Well, in all honesty, I would say, you know what? It won't harm my marriage because my marriage is strong and secure. Now we've spent 38 years building a life together, becoming one. And it's not going to harm my marriage. But the reality is it could harm somebody else's marriage. It's always weak people who get hurt. See, it won't might not hurt my marriage, but here's, here's the answer. If there is a ruling in this land, nationwide, from Supreme Court or whoever makes it state by state, that same sex marriages are okay and they're lawful, then you have lost God's plan for marriage from the beginning of time he didn't create adam and steve but he created adam and eve and that is how families are to be started coming together with men and women a man and a woman be careful about that rather than just saying partners that's your word today's partners i think about a business relationship or a law firm whenever i hear that you know it ought to be a spouse your wife your husband talk about them that way you see wh- what happens then is is that that begins to undermine the foundation of our society and our culture, which is what? Marriage. God created that first. He performed the first marriage ceremony with Adam and Eve. Then you see, here's where it gets. If you you allow it between one man and another man, and one woman and another woman, then if they say they're in love, then, then what... What is to stop the courts from ruling to say, okay, if you've got two sisters who are raising somebody's child and they say, well, we love each other, we want to get married so we can have the benefits of the tax breaks and of the tax benefits and of health care and of all those things that marriage gives. Logical argument, isn't it? They say, okay, you've got two men living together, and they bring a woman into that relationship. And they say, you know what, we want to be a family. We want to get married so that we can have those benefits. Or you've got two women living together, and they bring in a man, and they say, we want to be married, and we want to have a family. See, when you open the door, you can't close it. Okay, it's all right, same-sex marriage will be okay as long as it is between one man and, and another man, and between one woman and another woman. But that, that won't happen, will it? There are going to be other people who are going to come and say, no, I I don't fit in that category, but I want marriage to be defined as this. And our nation says, oh, okay, if that's what you want to do, then fine. And what happens? Our nation is destroyed from the inside. The foundation of of the fabric of our society is destroyed. You see, that's how it can destroy marriage. Now, I want to ask, okay, what what does God, if God gives us this beautiful gift of, of sex, you know, what does he bless? How do we glorify God in it? Well, it's very simple. Draw a circle. Don't, don't make it very big. Just draw a circle. And then there will write husband and wife. And within that circle with the husband and the wife, there is where sex glorifies God. At the deepest level of intimacy. Old Testament used the phrase knew. say no. He knew his wife. And she had, she bore a child. You know, that doesn't mean that he said, hey, how are you? And she got pregnant. They knew each other at the deepest level. God blesses sexual activity within that circle confined to marriage. Now, fourth thing I'll say real quick is this. Sexual purity is essential for a relationship with God. Why is that? It's because any sin breaks that relationship and fellowship with God. And it is essential that we walk in a relationship with God. See, God wants you to remain sexually pure by abstaining if you're not married. And when I want our youth to hear that. Anybody else in here who's not married is you need to abstain. You heard these young people? I don't know who they were. We went out there at Sermon Spice or somewhere and we found a video and said they're not actors. They were real people, real young people. And they talked about saving themselves for marriage. Save yourself for marriage. And then he wants you to remain sexually pure within your marriage by being committed to your spouse. Now, what do we say if you have fallen to any of this? Let me tell you this. God loves you. And he's ready to forgive you. And the Bible has many examples of people who were very important to God. Who failed him morally. Uh, Lot messed up sexually. Abraham had sex with his wife's handmaid. Rahab was a prostitute. And yet she was in the lineage of the birth of Jesus Christ. Samson... And not control his lustful pride, and that ended up in his ruination. And David committed adultery with Bathsheba. And the stories go on and on and on. But every one of these found forgiveness, and you can too. If you're willing to come to God and confess what you've done and say, I know that it's wrong, I, I know that what I've done is wrong, and I repent of it, and I ask for your forgiveness. And here, here's something else that you have to do. You remember when the woman in John 8 was caught in adultery? And they brought her to Jesus to try to trick him. They didn't bring the man, because, but the law said that both of them should be stoned. But they brought the woman and said it should be stoned. And Jesus said, okay, you without sin cast the first stone. And they all were embarrassed and they walked away. What did he say to the woman? He didn't say, okay, what happened was okay. What he said to the woman was, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. So you got to come clean with God and then God wants you to stay clean. But here's what, don't forget this. If you're a child of God, you got the Holy Spirit in your life and you got the power of the Holy Spirit to fight that sexual battle with you and for you. So don't forget that. I don't in any way want to condemn you. I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to be the church that's faithful in sexual purity for the glory of God. Father, we thank you for the gift of sex that you've given to us. And we thank you, Father, for the guidelines that you give to us through your holy word, that we will know how we're to glorify you in the wonderful, wonderful gift of sex. Father, I pray that uh, as we hear your word today, that we, your children, will make decisions that will allow us to be firm in our convictions, will remain true to being faithful for you. And we will confine sex only to marriage. And we'll, young people unmarried will wait for marriage before they have sex. And that they would all honor and glorify you. And Father, I pray that these decisions will be made uh, uh, through the power of Jesus Christ as Savior and the Holy Spirit abiding in, in hearts and lives. To empower them to resist the lust and the temptation that this world offers. And Father, we want to be sacredly pure, walking in your, in your glory and walking with you for all eternity. And I pray that we will be resolved to make those decisions. In Jesus' name, amen.